Something I did last week you guys should do. I added all my kids to my credit card accounts. I Tell put me. them I put I put them as approved users on my credit card. So when they turn 18, they're going to have like 9 credit. years of credit card history. Credit. Yeah. So they will probably have so like it'll say their longest account open from Bank of America. Like they got checking accounts a few years ago, but I just added mm. them to a credit card account. When they turn 18, they're going to have 800 credit scores. You, you awesome. don't need to do that because um, the credit card company is going to give everybody credit. <laughs> but they'll get the best rate. Yeah, they maybe, maybe they'll get the best rate. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the King's Table, episode number 27. Excited for today's conversation. I am joined with my good friends. Maddie A. Aitchison, the hero of hospitality. I don't know why I put A. Aitchison. I'm sorry. It's Maddie Aitchison. Sure. Everyone calls him Maddie A. That's why my, psych my psychology is all messed up. Uh, of course, the trend spotter himself, zooming in from wherever the heck he is, Aaron Amuchastegui. And I'm your host, Ashish Nathu. We are missing the sage, the Mike Ayala, of course. Uh, but good to see you guys. Excited for today's conversation. Um, I thought we would actually just start with some economic news, a little bit of uh, economic information from Maddie. Maddie's Money Corner. Maddie always does a really good job of giving us a perspective of what's going on in the world in terms of economics and inflation and financials. So, Maddie, I'll turn it over to you. We have a lot of good topics today, but uh, let's get at it. Yeah, I think the the biggest one was obviously CPI came in quote unquote hot. Right. When you think about what does, you know, hot really mean when they're reporting CPI, I think that is all up for interpretation and depending on what outlet you're getting that information from. But CPI came in at 3.1 versus the expected 2.9. Uh, core CPI is at 3.9% versus the 3.7% estimate. I think overall, it's not like it is going up and going up drastically. But at the same time, I think the uh, excitement and optimism a lot of people had on a potential cut in March is completely off the table. I think even May might be off the table still as well. And based on what a lot of people are you know, sharing their sentiments and thoughts around this on, I know that Lawrence Yoon, the uh, NAR chief economist, his statement, the desired inflation is 2% and the latest rise of 3.1% consumer price index in January is not yet comfortable. One big source of stubbornness to further calmness is that housing shelter inflation is rising at 6%. That's probably one of the larger variables in this hot print is because it is taking into account shelter. And we all know what's going on in the housing markets with unaffordability, with obviously interest rates, with supply and demand. And he said that it's also a bit of a mystery since apartment rents are no longer rising and single family rent growth is at low single digits. Um, so I think that, you know, what are we going to see? He believes that cuts are going to start happening in the second half of the year. I know that uh, one of the Fed chairs, I believe his name is Mester Meister. Um, he had kind of come out publicly after the print and said, uh, it would be a mistake for the U.S. Federal Reserve to start cutting interest rates too soon, despite its recent progress against inflation. I think a lot of people still feel the inflation, even though it's you know pulled back in a really big way. Um, and obviously, we saw the markets respond to that yesterday after I think it was 14 weeks of, of gains and growth, uh, pretty significant pullback. Um, but I mean, that's part of, you know, being in the game of investing, right, is I love what Morgan Housel said to us, Aaron, at an event a couple years ago. He said, volatility is the price you pay for trying to get wealthy and rich. And I think this is just another one of those examples, right, of riding this roller coaster of wealth building, staying invested, obviously, is key. Dollar cost averaging through some of these, you know, cycles is key. And also looking at certain sectors that might, you know, be great plays to add into your portfolio and diversify a little bit. Um, curious what your guys' thoughts are. I think overall, you know, at the end of the day, we're kind of where the Fed wants us to be. And this is a little bit of a crosswind that I think is making the soft landing a little bit more, you know, challenging for them. But I think the runway is still there. 
the plane is right there. There's just, you know, a little bit of turbulence that they're trying to navigate in this first half of the year that I think is going to dictate how quick and how aggressive they go on the cuts. The, the bright news is they're cutting. They've said they're cutting. The market's baked in the cuts. Now, how quickly and how aggressive they go and when they start doing that, still TBD. I feel vindicated by the recent news and the Fed chatting that way because I know I have been the, the, the bear, the glass half full guy. The no rates aren't going to get decreased. And when I talked about it on Instagram, you know, three, four months ago, I had a lot of haters, a lot of people said, and as soon, and when they put that announcement by ING that we talked about a few weeks ago, and mind you first, I mean, we start, you started this episode of Sheesh in episode 27. We've been doing this together for half a year. That's freaking wild. Like 27 weeks in a row. We we've didn't even celebrate our half birthday, man. We didn't even Dude, celebrate I, our half birthday. I can't. I can't think of another thing that I've done the last 27 weeks in a row, right? And I missed one call out of the 20s. Man, I'm proud of us and myself that we're still here having these conversations. But the but sorry, back to the task at hand after congratulating you guys and us with that. So I remember it said like ING says this many cuts. I said they were wrong. People told me I was an idiot. And then even a couple of weeks later, when the Fed chair said, hey, we are going to drop, then people said, well, Aaron, now it is official. You said ING wasn't this, but now you're the idiot. And I remember us saying he said it too early. And because it's he said it too early, the stock market's going to tear. And then he's not going to be able to. Stock market yesterday had the worst day it's had for since March 2023, right? So I think we also talked about three or four weeks ago that everybody had priced five cuts into the stock market. That's why it was yep. tearing. And so now they're realizing there will not be five cuts this year, period. Right. And so I was wondering, Maddie, as soon as you said the announcement, like, like talked about CPI was up and that they, and they said that I was thinking, I wonder what happened to the stock market yesterday. Cause immediately I was thinking they'd already priced in those cuts. So now that came down, it's coming back a little bit today. So I'm not, um, yeah, I think it's exactly what we said on here. I think we said they said it too soon. Uh, the economy is still going too well. And by saying it too soon, the economy is still going to go up. Does that mean we'll get two or three rate cuts this year? Maybe still. Um, I, I won't be surprised if we do, but I also will not be surprised if this is the new num new normal where, where if December 2024, the, the Fed rate is what it is today. Right. And today it's like it's like February. You know, it's Valentine's Day, 2024, as we're recording this, and I and I would not be surprised. If December 2024, Fed funds raised just the same as today. One of the things I wanted to share I have this article on the screen. Uh, it's a Wall Street Journal article. For those of you who are listening, it says investors are almost always wrong about the Fed. This was published just a few weeks ago on February 8th. It looks like I thought this chart was really interesting, Aaron. Uh, it's exactly what you're saying. What if what if the Fed doesn't change rates at all this year? What yeah. if it actually stays the same? What this is basically presenting is that the market is often more optimistic in either direction than the Fed actually behaves. So if you look at this chart all the way back to 2005, the yield curve, uh, which is what the expectation is, which is in blue here, it shows so many times where the yield curve is wrong, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I think they call this like a hairline chart. It shows like all the hairlines off of what the actual is. But you can see here too that the yield curve, which also shows right now that it's it's turning and it's turning faster than the Fed is signaling. Uh, let's assume that we're right here in 2024. By the end of 25, the market is already talking about it's going to average about 4%. So that's a whole point down. Based on history of this chart over the last 20 years, the yield curve is wrong based on what the Fed does. So it's going to be really interesting. I'd love to get your guys' perspective of, well, what does that really mean? And where is the opportunity considering that? I think people probably are, you know, and, and uh, Maddie, we were talking about debt, good debt, bad debt. I think people sort of wishfully think like, as long as they lower rates this year, maybe my deal could still make sense. Maybe if I have to refinance, I'll have to refinance a year, year and a half later at a point, point and a half less. So maybe I can still make this work. You're sort of biased in your own optimism. 
we've said this on the podcast. We want rates to stay higher for longer because it's opportunity for the right people. Um, so how much of this is just the market signaling, media signaling, more optimism that really exists, but actually there's more damage and media wants to maybe manage that, that fear? And what will happen if it stays the same? I mean, what happens if we're in here 2025 and the rate has not changed at all? Why should they change the rate? Why should they lower it? What's the incentive? Unemployment's still like lower than it's ever been. Inflation is basically under control. The stock market is highest it's ever been. Businesses are making more money than it's ever been. What, what's the incentive to stimulate the market? Keep the rates high. If they didn't, what would that look like? I'm looking at more data here. The Congressional Budget Office expects the unemployment rate to climb from 3.7 to 4.4 over the next 12 months. But as of January today, the economy was still down around 1.7 million workers compared to before the pandemic. So when you think about, right, there's, there's, there's still a lot of positive news going on that the Fed is kind of trying to navigate and fight against. And if you go historically in, you know, what history shows, U.S. stocks fall more than 20% when the Fed initiates rate cuts. That's, that's I think, over the last like 100 and something years or, or the uh, I think it was like 80 years or something like that. So when you think about it, right, with what year we're in and what implications, you know, are a result of... Uh, what plays out this year, at least in politics and policy, you know, there there may or may not be incentive for the Fed to aggressively cut rates and re-stimulate the economy when, you know, a very significant portion of the data supports that there's a lot of sectors of the economy that are doing really well right now. But then you see, you know, statistics, right? I think I put it in our chart not long ago, that Americans now owe a collective $1.2 trillion on credit cards. And so I think it is, to me, showing that uh, this wealth gap in the middle has continued to get wider and wider, and you either don't feel pain and you're actually benefiting from what is going on right now in the economy, or you're in the camp that you're feeling a lot of pain. You barely are making it by. You have less than $1,000 in your emergency fund. You have credit card debt that you're even having challenging challenges servicing that. And there's really not this big you know, group of individuals in the middle as much as it once was. And I don't know what you know the Fed is going to do this year in terms of rates, but I I'm in line, I think, with where Lawrence Yun said, hey, I think you know it's going to be choppy week to week, but I think we'll probably settle closer to 6% for you know, interest rates by the end of the year. And I think that will create some good stimulus in certain sectors of the economy. But I also think that they're still kind of wanting to see a little bit more pain and carnage reflected in the data. And mind you, that data is lagging data. We're basing policy today off of three months ago. You know, so that is also a very interesting way for us to navigate when we have all of the technology we have nowadays to be able to get things so quick and easy to be making such such significant decisions around policy and those implications as a result of that off of three months ago just seems a little bit long in the tooth that I would be interested to see what things would look like if we had a little bit more accurate and real-time data that we're utilizing to make a lot of these decisions. I think right now, if they don't lower the rates till the end of the year, I'll be heartbroken because some of my businesses are getting crushed more by the day. So I need everybody to know, like, I'm not rooting for this to happen as I try to predict it or tell people what to do. But like the, but look back at what happened in 07 and 08, right? Like the, they held for a long time. Now, as a result, starting in 09, we had one of the worst real estate recessions ever where we had the foreclosure catastrophes. So one reason for them to not hold that long is to try to prevent that. But one thing we've also figured out is there is enough equity built in this time. What happened back in 09 was a high percentage of loans were fake, false second homes that people got when they weren't even approved to buy them, right? 
We don't have that this time. We have some of that. What we mostly have now is multifamily and office that sucks. And so, like, I look back to why wouldn't they do it the exact same that they did in 07? The only reason they would they would drop quicker is so they don't have the recession they had in 09. But I think they also realize they aren't going to have that recession uh, in like they had in 09 because the properties are still we're seeing a lot of foreclosures right now, but we're still not seeing as many as we had pre-COVID. If they hold for another six months the way they are. We still won't see what we had then. I think they still get there. I think they actually get their soft landing, which I thought was impossible. So I think if the Fed truly wants a soft landing, they're not worried about politics. They're just going to hold like they did in 07. Like there's because the real estate market in 2021 was the closest to 2005 than we've seen since. Like it felt exactly the same. You get a house under contract while it's under construction. By the time it's done, you've made $100,000. People are printing money. Like 2021 was exactly like 2005. And I think the big difference if the Fed does exactly what they did in 07, we're not gonna see the crisis like we saw in 09. So anyway, yeah, I think um, we talk about good debt versus bad debt. I think if that was part of the conversation or maybe you're gonna bring up that article I have a just a random interesting part. I told you guys about the house that I'm trying to take subject to right now. But they're actually, the guy got less comfortable at subject to and said, well, let's try to do a real assignment. So we reached out to his lender to say, hey, uh, we want it to be an, a legit assignment, right? We want Aaron, will you actually let me assign the loan or Aaron completely takes over the loan? The lender said, yes, that's something they do. And they're sending us over the application. But I'm wondering right now if a lender would truly do that or not or why they would do that or not. Because it's like a 3.75% interest rate. Like I'm, I'm guessing a lender is gonna say like, yeah, there's a part and then not approve me because why would they approve someone new to 375 when they could get it paid off and go do paper another way? But I'll be really curious to see how um, how that plays out as a good debt versus bad debt deal. What were you What were you contemplating there, Maddie, about good debt, bad debt? What, do you, what, what were you thinking about? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, this this idea and, and narrative around good debt and bad debt, right? Good debt being it's, you know, debt leveraged for cash flowing, appreciating assets, bad debt used for consumer spending, depreciating assets, right? Things that are not going to service the debt. And so many people subscribe to that idea over the last however many years. How many syndicators do I know that are stuck between a rock and a hard place right now with cap rates expiring, with arms adjusting, with balloon payments or bridge loans coming due? Essentially, a lot of that was good debt tied to good assets. But I think the key here is, is or the question is, is there such a thing as too much you know, the layman's term for that is being over leveraged. You can have good debt on cash flowing assets, but be over leveraged in a loan to value position that, like we're seeing today, in an environment where interest rates jump, we see what's going on in the economy. We see, you know, things softening in certain real estate asset classes and markets, cap rates expanding, and all of a sudden values now are dropping. Well, your good debt is now in a position where you're over leveraged and you're really stuck, right? Some people are upside down with good debt on properties, but value has dropped. So I think that there is, you know, a question here for a lot of people that are thinking about, you know, the idea of just because you're layering in debt to a real estate asset that has cash flow and equity growth and tax benefits and all of these things that it's going to be a surefire way to build your wealth by leveraging good debt. But I think that, you know, there needs to be an asterisk next to that. And that's why, right, like people like Aaron and individuals who are really great underwriters and operators and who understand that these market cycles they underwrite and buy and lever up good debt based on potential worst case scenarios and mitigate that risk. And I think a lot of people over the course of the last few years just said, I'm getting good debt and I'm going to leverage up as much as I can. There's no way interest rates are going to go to 7% in 12 or 24 months. No way. I don't need to model that in. Right. So thinking about how many people bought in and subscribed to that narrative but did it in somewhat of an egregious manner of taking it to the max, I think, is the individuals that we're seeing 
have good debt on assets now being stuck in really bad situations. And there's something to be said for that. I saw one of my buddies who works on Wall Street sent me an internal commercial loan report. And this is stuff that, you know, you, you basically, it's just not shared with the public. And 20.3%, a fifth of all commercial loans seek refinance or risk default in the next 18 months. Wow. And in that 20.3%, almost 90% of it, 87% of it is office. Yeah. I believe it because because we're two years into, I mean, when did the rates change? Like 2022? September right? so we're, two, we're two years in. And so it does make sense in the next one to two years. Like Usually four a three years is a long time. So it does make sense that a lot of stuff is going to be coming due. It's the foreclosure stuff that we've seen getting yep. sold. We saw some huge foreclosures this month too. It's a scary number and it's, and, uh, but seems realistic. So what, yeah. what, what comes back to me to kind of bring it full circle to your question is I think, and we've already seen, you know, certain um, distress and debt funds coming in with rescue capital to banks or to, you know, other um, investment groups and specific assets coming in to restructure their debt and why I think a potential you know, and I don't know the the numbers on your situation, but I think banks are so concerned about the health of some of their loans in their portfolio that they're open and looking at all different types of conversations that might put them in a better position to absorb some of the risk. And ultimately, right, the banks don't want these assets back. Um, they want their money back, maybe. But that being said, just like what you did with your office, you know, space, right? The moment of the market said, "Hey, I can either go shop around and look at you know twenty other office spaces that I can get for a fraction of the price, or let me go have a conversation with my landlord and the person that you know is the individual controlling this asset and see if we can find a win-win." And I think. And I'm already hearing more and more banks, more and more lenders, more and more debt positions being open and having these conversations and structuring them accordingly based on what their individual portfolio looks like and the risk that they feel they might see coming for them in the short term future. So it's just very interesting to see that something as big as that is already having a ripple effect and the actual carnage hasn't necessarily showed up on people's mm -hmm. doorsteps. There was a $30 million loan got foreclosed on this week in Texas office building, right? And nobody bid on it. Yeah, you and mentioned that on your, your gram. Yeah, but the lender said their plan is to actually operate it for several years until cap rates come around and they can sell because they don't want to write off because they know that in order to actually sell it today it would be 10 15 20 million bucks and the lender doesn't want to be an operator but they're like you know what we can put a property management manager on it get almost what we were getting for the monthly and then maybe five or ten years we'll be able to sell it for 30 million or 40 million yeah so they're they're going to be taking some more stuff over that way well i just i, I want to bring it back to a bigger a bigger topic because i feel like we're I mean, we speak a lot about real estate but it is in the it's it is a really small niche in the overall economy, we've said that the Fed may just let the real estate companies burn, right? In this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the 60 Minutes interview with Powell. That guy yeah. is not phased by anybody. <laughs> no. He's probably getting phone calls from the biggest bankers, biggest politicians in the world trying to twist his arm. He doesn't give a shit. And... And I got it. You got to give him some credit for navigating the situation in in the way that it's come about. We are talking about one small niche of commercial real estate, maybe some other categories of real estate that are at exposure over the next eighteen months of loans. But what if he doesn't care? And and so from an, a greater economic side, which again I'm coming from the pillar of the non real estate guy on the call is like, everything's fine. In fact, everything is great. 
And so does that mean that a few hundred people who own a majority of the real estate implode and lose a lot of wealth? Maybe that happens. I guess the question is, is what is really the deeper impact of that? And does he have to adjust for that? So for example, if, if there are that many losses, then that hits the bank's balance sheet. If it hits the bank's balance sheet, then how does it hit Main Street? Does it hit in their 401ks or the stock prices of their portfolios or, or somehow how does it hit grandma? And if it doesn't hit grandma, they may say, you know what? We're talking about the 1% or less than 1% of people that are going to really struggle with this. And by the way, those people are the wealthiest people on the planet. So if the overall economy is doing great, just going back to my point is I'm going to take the over under that maybe we have one adjustment this year, if not zero. Everything else is doing great. We're leaning, we're having a biased conversation just about real estate and I get it, but everything else, let the, let the real estate loans burn. You know, it's funny too, because the way that the, the way that that real estate can play out, we're talking about people going back to the office and everything else. Like, I think it's, I think it's going to be tied together. If everyone does come back to the office, I think we will see some unemployment go up from the people that had two jobs. But what you said about Powell, like to just put an exclamation point on that, whether you agree with him or not, we need more people in positions of power that are willing to do what they think is the right plan, regardless of what everyone else is telling them. Because he believes it's the right plan. He's following what they did in the 80s. And I've told you guys multiple times, my mentor Arnold said, you know, in the 80s, the Fed crushed all the real estate investors, but he saved the world, right? And they said Volcker saved the world, but crushed all of us, right? And the real estate investors weren't even mad about it. They were like, yeah, like he crushed us, but like the world. So, the, so we need more people in power that are like, I think I'm doing the right thing. So I'm going to do it regardless of what you guys are telling me to do. The, the one thing that kind of stood out to me, Barry Sternlich did a um, an interview on Squawk Box or something like that uh, a week or two ago. And what he was talking about when you said, you know, is this, a, is this an existential crisis? He went on to say, absolutely it is. You know, the office sector being as big as it is, we're talking, you know, multi-trillion dollar industry and we've got mm -hmm. about 1.2 trillion or something like that coming due here pretty soon he goes this is not all wall street money and you know banks that are going to be the ones getting smacked upside the head these are pension funds of teachers firefighters you know police officers grandmas and grandpas that's what'll cause the the soft landing but that street. being said, I'm I'm in the camp of of Mooch. I think, you know, when there are, you know, challenging times in the economy, we have historically shown that we do make the necessary adjustments while there are, you know, fallouts in certain sectors and for certain, you know, demographics and parts of the country and asset classes and industries, you know, the the greater good is i think what most uh people are looking at here and while it's going to hurt some people it's going to create some opportunity but most importantly it's going to keep us in a position to keep moving you know forward as a, as a whole so i think that we'll navigate this and we will find a way to come out stronger as a result of it but i also believe that there's going to be a lot more pain to come and we really i still don't think have scratched the surface of what that's going to look like let me let me kind of set this up for mooch Let's talk about office and commercial. As a furniture maker, we have been starting to look at office furniture companies for the last two or three years, knowing that, okay, this is going to be a place of distress. Is there going to be opportunity here? So I, I'm, I want to scratch at this and see if there's a leading indicator for people. Um, let me share my screen. So when we talk about office, we talked about this last week and on the pod about people really wanting to come back to the office. Um, companies forcing people to come back to the office. Um, there's almost this desire where people are like kind of tired from working from home and want to come back to the office too. I'm seeing and hearing more of that conversation happening. But I want to show this really quick. These these three companies, this is Miller Knowles, Dealcase, and Herman uh, H&I, which is um, another large uh, office furniture company. So these companies manufacture 
office, government, K through 12, um, contract furniture. So cubicles, desk chairs, partitions, all that kind of stuff. These are multi-billion dollar companies. Um, Herman Miller just bought Knoll about a year, year and a half ago. And so if you look at this, these companies are, are, you would expect that the sales of office contract furniture would have plummeted and would have stayed down since COVID. And if you look what's going on, these guys are starting to recover. So there is, there's actually, and, and I study these companies pretty closely, I, uh, not specifically the manufacturers, but the distributors of the companies that are actually meeting with the Aaron's and the Maddie's and the Ashish's of the world, trying to, you know, renovate your office or what have you. And they're, they're not seeing significant revenue drops because they're well diversified. So if it's not an office, it's a government project or it's a, it's a K through the schools are spending a lot of money or what have you. So the distributors and these manufacturers are actually moving a lot of product. And we're starting to see people reinvesting in their offices, going back to the office. And we're really fresh. We started seeing articles in the last week or two for big multinational companies demanding people to come back to the office. So who knows? Maybe the office world does flip. And yes, there's going to be huge vacancies because I think we probably are overbuilt, but maybe it's not 30% vacant, Maddie. Maybe it's 15% vacant and we can survive with that. I think it's fascinating as we're starting this. I do think more people are, get, are starting to be back at the office. We've seen those big announcements. We're seeing more and more of them. I'm very curious about how that's going to change businesses and the business lifestyle and we've talked about like predictions before is we i do think um i think wages will probably go down a little because the, more jobs will come on the market from people not taking the jobs and people not being able to do it um i think that those furniture companies are a leading indicator um and that maybe now is a good time to buy the right office product, but also knowing whenever there's any asset class that's going to have a 30% vacancy or a 20% vacancy, that does mean that some buildings are going to have an 80% vacancy. So if you're deciding to move into office and start investing in office or investing in right stuff, when the market's high, like any house sells, any office sells, when the market's down or crappy, like houses still sell, but the funky ones don't, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would say the same with office. Right, so now we're gonna to start to move people back in, but they're not gonna move into the crappy offices. They're not gonna move into the funky ones that struggled with parking or that were like weird conversions or in the wrong area or a little bit further away, mm. right? The office that's going to get filled up is going to be the stuff that is the nice stuff with the perfect area and the perfect amenities, but also priced like the other ones. Um, and I think the pull up that article on the cubicles, and I think it becomes this big conversation. I think we can we can talk about both articles at the same time. But I was fascinated by this, and the it's a I think I think it's a, a I don't know if, remember if it's an insider article or Bloomberg article as as Tim's trying to pull it up. So the and so I think the headline of it says like cubicles are back or like return of yeah bring back cubicles. It says cubicles were the hallmark of a dull soul sucking job, and now they seem like paradise lost. And if you start to scroll through that picture just a little bit, it's saying that like, so we've made this big push that said, come back to the workplace, right? And years ago, like, so the, yeah, that picture that's gonna hold on there was a joke about how the cubicle was like the example of how bad offices were. And then all the tech companies, and I don't know, it started in like early 2000, I think it probably started in early 2000. I know, I know it's for sure like, you know, 2010-ish, any office I went into in Austin, or in 2015 in like startup world, they all had open cubicles. They were like sharing spaces. There was like a chef inside the thing. You could like see the chef cooking over there while people are over here and they're like throwing drones back. I saw, I mean, I went to some office, I'm like, these are playing out in the time of their life. And they would brag about the fact there were no cubicles. And now they've said, hey, it's time to come back to the office and workers. And specifically this article, it says Gen Z and I have some experience with that. And I'm saying, yes, this is, happening and occurring. Although I was shocked by it when I read through the article, it makes sense. They are requesting cubicles to come back. So one, they would all like private offices first, but, we, but that's not a reality. So now they all want to have cubicles again and cubicles in a way where no one can see their screen when they're walking by. And so they're used to like this, <laughs> right? So they're used to working from home. 
Yeah. Right. And they're saying, and they're used to their privacy. And let's be honest, like there's some that work better at home and have been working the whole time, but there's many that like have been watching Netflix too. Right. Yeah, or doing a other Z things. Problem. This is a Gen right? Z it's, problem. I, I think it, I think it is. I hate to do that, but I think it is mostly a Gen Z problem. Uh, yeah. Based also on when they started working and what their lifestyle has been since the time they graduated and COVID and everything else. But the idea of somebody being able to see what's on their computer is like, way worse than the idea of these open cubicles that are like nice fun offices that are like everybody's hunky dory and working together. They want privacy. So if they're going to have to go to the office, they want to have privacy where they've got walls on all three sides and to where they can work over That's here and nobody really knows what they're doing. It makes a lot of sense. I think it is mostly fascinating. Like, and I know I say that a lot, but it's like, so bell bottoms were awesome and then bell bottoms suck and well, then bell bottoms come back. And so now it's like cubicles are the same thing. Right? I mean, let, yeah. me, let me kind of double click on that. If you think about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, everybody wanted to talk about how you attract millennials into your workforce. How do you instill purpose and values and excitement in them? Mm -hmm. How do you motivate them different? They can't be motivated with a tough stick like the generation before. Like that was the biggest craze. I remember consultants up the wazoo coming to every single Vistage meeting to us. Like it's all about culture for the millennials. They want to feel heard and seen and they want to be inclusive. <laughs> they want to have purpose. They don't care about money and the experience like and now it's this now it's it's what we're seeing now is like well th this is the social media generation the technology generation the privacy generation the there, there's a lot of individualism in that so leave me in my own space leave me in my pajamas i want to hide behind my screen behind my cube tell me what to do so fascinating that we're seeing that trend yeah I, that's why i think it's important to spot these trends, why I love having these conversations with Aaron and why we all bring what we bring to the table each and every week is so fascinating. Things can change on a dime. And dime. it's just a reminder that if you want to stay in front of, you know, these trends and be ahead of the curve and to capitalize on them and to position yourself accordingly to achieve whatever outcome it is that you want, data and also nimbleness to respond to the data and what it's telling you, I think is important. There's a lot of people that I know have access to all the same information we do, but they're so much slower to implement and integrate it. And it is very interesting when you think about, you know, 23, I think it was 23 or, or 35, what was it? Let me, 35% of remote workers had an increased chance of having their jobs terminated. So I think, I believe right, that. this this is a little bit of a game of chess here where they're going, shoot, I just need to get back in the office, but I still wanna do a lot of the same things I was doing at home. I don't want people to hold me accountable to, you know, uh, maybe the, the same things that work was before COVID. Uh, now, right, these types of requests and asks are becoming more normal for people. So it's gonna be interesting to see how employers navigate this. But like you said, right? If you get you know, a significant amount of people back into the workforce um, inside of offices, you know, that can lead to great productivity and great culture and also make a big difference and impact in certain sectors of the economy. Commercial yep. real estate being one of them, all of the downtowns that, you know, were missing 35% of the workforce because they were working in their computer at home versus, you know, going and grabbing a Starbucks or sitting at the local coffee shop outside in between breaks. So I am very interested to see how this trend plays out throughout the rest of the year. And I think as the economy gets a little bit more challenging for people to navigate, they will not have the leverage and posture at the negotiating table to sit here and dictate the terms that they once were able to dictate to employers yeah. and in within certain industries. I got on Facebook and I'm like, I need to buy a bunch of used cubicles right now, but not used cubicles where you, where you can see their computer screen. They've got it. And there's a bunch of those for sale. If you're going to go invest in used cubicles, it's got to be close to give people the privacy, the three sided to where that you can't see that they're playing Candy Crush uh, and stuff like that. Pre COVID, you wish you would have invented, you wish you would have invested in a plexiglass company, right? Yeah. Like the, like who wishes yeah. that they would have gotten the plexiglass contract in, in Las Vegas. Those guys were like print, printing money. So anyway, the, I think 
I think it's real. I think it makes sense. I think it is going to be a trend. I think as they're pushing people back to office, cubicles are coming back. Ash's point about the reason we opened up office was for community, right? So people wanted community, right? And the and they wanted to have culture, so they want to see each other and high five and things like that. And they don't care about that with Gen Z. So I'm ready for the next one. That's awesome stuff. Well, I think you also see, and and I I want to go to the next topic, but I think for sure companies had more per square footage per employee probably in the last decade than they've had in the previous decades because of these trends that people wanted to have more open space, more communal space, more coffee, hanging out, community relationship building space than just floors and floors and floors of cubicles. So now we do have more real estate space and now we have an entire generation of people that are pushing us the opposite, opposite direction. So it's going to be it's going to be fun. Great, great catch. Good conversation. I think this is an interesting and maybe we 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 kick it to another episode, but I think there's an opportunity there, right? Because when you when you see a lot of these spaces that were commercial office, they were reflecting that trend, that environment, that narrative, right? And I think we're going to start to see, because of this individualism and mm -hmm. people being more isolated, more okay being by themselves, I think there's a really interesting play here. I've been hearing and seeing a couple developers in the office space specifically that are already doing this. And they are, again, like Aaron said, you know, there's going to be a lot of distress in, in commercial office, but that's not all crappy commercial real estate in the office sector. There's a lot of good assets and good markets and good locations but the asset no longer makes sense as it once was, and it's going to need to get repurposed. And so chopping these down into much smaller spaces for this idea of smaller companies, more individualism, there's going to be a lot of those opportunities out there in commercial real estate office. And so whether that is you know mixed-use developments, creative lofts, student housing, you know, multifamily, just smaller micro office spaces. I think there's going to be some great opportunity for that. So if you can find some good commercial real estate, you know, in great locations in the office sector and have a great model that meets what that market is looking for, I think there's going to be some really, really, really lucrative upside in some of those. Spot on, Maddie. Let's let's riff on some business ideas next time. Well, maybe we'll have a whiteboard uh, think tank session on how we can optimize and create some small business ideas. One of the things I do want to share before I pivot to the NAR and turn it over to Mooch is we we were uh, I was in a little seminar last week with the one of the head of research for um, LoopNet's like research department or whatever, and obviously one of the conversations was office, and he said that less than one percent of the office buildings in America are capable of converting into uh, living into apartments. We've talked about this here. I think there's a lot of hype about startups taking office buildings and converting them. But just for the audience to know that, that these big research companies who assess and have all the data about all the real estate in office, they believe that less than 1% can actually even physically convert into multifamily and have that footprint just based on the layouts and, and uh, infrastructure. So that's not going to solve that problem, right? So anyways, back to Mooch. Let's talk about NAR. Um, we've been speaking about the National Association of Realtors. There was an issue that happened a few months ago, I think. Um, and I just felt like it'd be important to kind of catch up with that, Mooch. What's going on with that situation? Has that materialized in anything? Is there anything that we should know about? I think a few interesting things have happened in the last few months, you, you know, and and for listeners that didn't hear it, I will have to figure out, maybe we'll put what episode it was in the show notes, but it was really, really big news when uh, there was a lawsuit that came from a group. Uh, there's been lawsuits now from both the buyer and the seller side that pretty much said uh, the National Association of Realtors had created this conglomerate that was colluding to essentially make, uh, by working together, they were able to keep costs of real estate services high. Right, they were colluding to keep prices high. And my opinion of it, and when I watched the court trial, was absolutely yes. Um, by requiring people to be part of certain MLSs and things like that and paying commissions, they were able to keep 
commissions high. And anytime new groups came in to try to lower uh, commissions somehow with flat rate listings and things like that, there were tons of pushback. Um, you know, they've had people tell them why it's not okay. And there's lots of arguments of why, you know, realtor or a real estate agent should get paid $10,000 versus $500. I'm not saying that, and I'm not arguing that there isn't value and different value for real estate transactions. But what the lawsuit said was by the agents working together, they were fixing stuff at a certain fee that whether an agent was good or not, the fee was required to play the game. And most people that were interviewed didn't realize that like, you know, the seller was paying the commission for them. And had they gone direct to the seller, they could have probably gotten a better deal and avoided the commission. So age, a bunch of agents got on my page, didn't like what I was saying about it. And I don't necessarily like the change, but I do believe that it's valid, it's legal, and it's true. So what's happened since then? So like there was first, the first lawsuit went through. Um, the We talked about, you know, Keller Williams was one of the big defendants that got hit in that. Uh, there were articles that said Gary Keller should not have uh, testified because he didn't testify well to average America, which isn't shocking. He's a brilliant man, more brilliant than than most people. And so I could see how those conversations would go bad. And then we had a lawsuit start in these other states and getting bigger and bigger. And just yesterday, a Utah home seller files commission lawsuit against NAR and 13 others. So uh, three weeks ago, Keller Williams actually went and did a settlement. The funny thing is they fought it, fought it, fought it. And then instead of taking it to appeals, they actually settled and said like, okay, you're right. Kind of brilliant that they got to fight it all the way in case they got not guilty. And then they got a settlement that was just as good as the people that settled before. So good for them for trying to fight the battle. And then now they settled to try to say, okay, you're right. We don't want to do this anymore. Um, so this new lawsuit, real estate brokers working for nation's largest brokerages and franchisors in Utah illegally conspired with the National Association of Home Rules to keep broker commissions artificially high. Right. So the new commission lawsuit, just like the Pfizer one that happened, um, but it said the, um, it, and it said part of it is a rule that requires all sellers to make a blanket unilateral and effectively non-negotiation offer of buyer broker compensation, which is true, right? They'd say this is the commission offered. And if a buyer's agent said, I want you to pay me 3% instead of two and a half or vice versa, it just didn't really happen. They accused several of the same firms, including, uh, in, including the ones that settled, which were Anywhere Real Estate, Home Services America, RE Max, and Keller Williams. So it said that the three firms that have reached proposed settlements with the plaintiffs in two of the other lawsuits um, aren't necessarily off the hook. Those proposed settlements must be approved by the court to go into effect. So they're trying to do these settlements and not keep getting sued everywhere else. And so, um, so is the news over yet? No. Is it going to get fixed on appeal like people thought? No, uh, I do believe that um, over the next two years, buyer's agents commissions will be just, my prediction is the same as it was two, three months ago. It'll be more like commercial real estate where some people will pay a buyer to go represent them, but most cases are going to be where listing agents will still get paid. They're gonna have to represent both sides of uh, the deal when they do it. It's gonna make it harder for the listing agents to do it, but people are going to uh, adapt. It's gonna happen like that in commercial. But I think. The most interesting part of all the news really to me was KW was one of the ones that fought the lawsuit all the way through and then settled after, which I thought that was just kind of unique that even the other people on the other side would let them settle because by then they won. They're like waiting to get an even bigger right. settlement paid off. But then also those settlements don't stop them from getting sued in the 49 other states. And so we're going to see another 50 of these lawsuits happen over the next year until there really, really is ma major change, which I think will involve some of those big brokerages filing bankruptcy. And we're going, okay, there's nothing else for us to go after there. Um, we can't, like, they don't have a billion dollars to get sued on this commission lawsuit thing. And then all the lawsuits will have to stop. And then the change will be the commission structure will be different. So what is the future for NAR? I mean, I saw this was their first annual decline in membership since 2012. It looked like there was over 26,000 members lost. Is NAR wow. dead? Is there any value still left in NAR? Why would anybody, like, why do we even care? Yeah, why do, yeah. We, why do we need this? I think NAR, the decline was probably mostly because there's less agents. I don't think this news is the cause of it, although maybe it, sh maybe it should be. I think that the value will continue to decline. Most people, when I put up the post about it, they messaged me on social and they said, 
Yeah, if, if it wasn't for just getting access to MLS, Literally. they wouldn't use it. If NAR wants a future, th there's a there's a trade group that I'm a part of. It's called the National you know, Rental Commission Alliance something. I'm in there with Blackstone and some of those other guys. Anybody that owns more than 500 houses is eligible to join. And they have real lobbyists in there that go try to make law changes. They give us updates on changes. They go fight court cases. They'll go represent things. They're actually like doing stuff. So I think for NAR to like regain value, their offering needs to move from the legal help, which they hardly, I'm not, I guess I should make a comment. The legal help that they advertise and um, the access to MLS and the commission spread. I think that's the biggest offering they've had. And for the NAR to survive, they're gonna have to become more like the National Rental Home Council where they're actually spending money to go like defend the lawsuits on behalf of their members. Instead of like in theory, instead of KW having to go defend themselves, NAR would pay for the defense or something like that. There's a lot of different ways, but I think um, information is gonna be really, really helpful. Uh, I think that's what trade groups are gonna need. But I think, I don't think there's much of a future for NAR. Uh, I think there'll be other, I think people will list houses on Zillow instead and they're gonna get the same hey, amount Mooch. Mooch, you know, this, um... LoopNet and Crexy is one of like the largest online. They have like, they own 10X also. They yeah. just launched homes.com, I think, or apartments.com. Yeah. They launched it on the Super Bowl. Did you see that? Well, they, 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 they bought, apartments.com has been around. So they must have bought, they bought apartments.com. Okay, but, but maybe, the, maybe it's homes.com. Yes. Um, I got, I'll research that and I'll get some great info for us next week. But like, where I think your brain is going and what could be in theory, LoopNet has done a great job yeah. at helping commercial brokers no longer need the MLS. And most commercial is not posted on MLS. Most is posted on LoopNet instead. And people yeah, pay a fee. I guess that's my point is, does this get replaced with technology that's free, that's owned by homes.com and it becomes yeah. the market-wide MLS and then we use blockchain to transact? We don't even that, need brokers anymore? That that's is the future. That is the future that we're headed to. How fast it happens, I don't know. But the the more lawsuits and the quicker the big uh, companies get in trouble, the faster that goes. But that that is the future. But I'm going to research uh, that because LoopNet has done uh, an amazing job at that business plan. They've already done it. They've done this whole business plan exactly like that. Yeah, and they have all the data. They probably have all the infrastructure. Now they just tap into all the data sources and... They're just layering in a new asset class. That's it. Yeah, they already got all the infrastructure it's just another there. Another category, right? Yeah. It, yeah. it seems like a no-brainer. Taking the bureaucracy right out of it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, there was an article that we were talking about here, Maddie, about how uh, Americans owe about one point three trillion dollars on their credit cards, an all-time high. We can pull it up here to talk about it. Um, yeah, crazy that Americans are just spending so much money. Tell us about what's going on here. I mean, to me, it's it's more of an interesting discussion to have because I am not one of these individuals. I'm very diligent, paying my credit cards down. I, I spend everything right. on credit, mind you, and yeah. I pay it off obsessively. And I love, you know, the the game of, you know, kind of the credit card churn and hacking and all that kind of stuff. That being said, when you look at this data and you see how much debt is piling up and how many individuals that are in these data sets are talking about barely being able to service the interest rate payment on that debt. To me, that, that's, that signals a, a pretty big red flag and issue, which is just really hard and challenging to sort through when... We have a lot of the data, macro data, telling us the economy is healthy and the stock market is doing mm -hmm. well, and right, and and then at the same time, you see stuff like this. All it takes is another, and I think this is why it somewhat ties into the uh, money dysmorphia, you know, article that I shared with you guys as well of this daunting reality of you know, what people's finances actually are versus how they feel about their finances without knowing factually what they look like. And this was, yeah, an article that I had shared and it uh, looks like it's, it's gate kept. Uh, there might be another uh, one. Yeah. Um, I don't have it. 
But basically the, the article here was 43% of Gen Z and 41% of millennials say they suffer from a flawed perception of their finances dubbed money dysmorphia. I think we've all heard of body dysmorphia, right? Where people get obsessed and fixated about something to do with their body. And you're like, you're, you're good. You're fine. You look normal. But to them, right? Something is totally out of whack and there's this disconnect psychologically. And this trend termed money dysmorphia refers to a condition in which individuals feel insecure about their financial situation, regardless of its actual reality. And this article mm. kind of went on and it kind of talked about the different generations and based on the, the time that you grew up in and the, you know, what your parents told you and the reality of the physical economy and world, right? Baby boomers or, you know, the generation above that, right? Their idea and the, you know, narrative and psychology around money is way different than maybe the millennials and, you know, Gen Zers today. But both generations have been dealt blows in terms of experiencing once in a lifetime, you know, or generation defining events at young ages. And so, you know, perhaps it isn't as surprising that more than 40% of both generations report having money dysmorphia. And it said that 48% of Gen Z say they feel behind financially and 59% of millennials feel the same way. And when you keep hearing, because I think this is also a little bit probably tying into how psychology is getting shaped around how young people feel about their finances. You know, when you're tapped into Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all the social platforms, TikTok, right? And you keep hearing how hard it is and it, how expensive it is to buy a home and how much it costs to raise a child and how, you know, big corporations are slashing jobs and barely giving people enough money right out of college to pay for their, you know, apartment. You know, the reality is people feel like they can't achieve financial freedom and wealth. And yet at the same time, I also know other people that are diligently just following a very simple and basic plan and they are moving the needle forward on it. So it's just very interesting to see how the the psychology and the reality of what is possible and what is people's actual situations with their finances, there seems to be a very, you know, mm. major disconnect there. And for me, I just think it's one is scarcity based and the other is abundance and action based. And I think I put in the sheet as well, there was, um, there was a clip and if it's not in there, um, Millennials, investors under 40 have seen their wealth increase by 80% since 2019. And that was generally in the stock market. So when you think about it, the people who are actually taking action and kind of eliminating all the noise and following a very simple plan, they're winning. But then there's this big you know, group of individuals that are seeing the Lambos and the PJs and the Birkin bags and all this kind of stuff. And it's almost like it's, you know, it's tainting their mindset around what is possible for themselves. And they feel like it's much harder than maybe it actually is. I don't know. I just thought it was a really interesting discussion around the psychology of money and how young people feel there being a major disconnect. And that may not be as far out of reach as they're made to believe. I'll jump in for a second on this. I think... I've been waiting for the last year for the credit card companies to cut off the debt. They're max, they're higher than they've ever been, and they're higher than they've ever been, and they're higher than they've ever been. And you mean like to reduce the limits, Mooch? You mean like Yeah, to just to just finally tell people like, hey, I'm not gonna give you more debt because you've already maxed out, because now your credit rating's low, because you can barely afford it, because your job is changing, or yet reduce limits. That's not happening. And if I was a good, smart, traditional, like, so maybe what I would think, I would think that a credit card company would want to loan somebody something, be paid back in full, and get paid a high interest rate, right? I think that's what a lender used to be. I think now lenders can create these, like, perpetuity loans that almost like, so will the U.S. ever pay off its debt? No, never. 
they will pay an interest rate for a long time. Like, but why doesn't anyone care if they're ever going to get paid off? And then loans, like house loans were almost the same. And now like, and this is, I hope this is a real, this makes a lot of sense. Like as credit card loans, like the new student loan, where they actually are going to keep raising limits, they will keep raising rates. They will know that these people will never pay them off, but they will be, but there's so much extra big money in the world that they can actually resell them as an annuity. Like, hey, this kid owes us 20,000 bucks, but he's never going to pay it off. So like, do you want to buy it for 18 and now you'll get 800 bucks for the rest of their life? Like, okay, like the, so I, so I'm wondering, I guess it's, it's more of a theory and like an analysis of like, wait, a year ago, if they were trying to get paid back, they would have cut off people's credit limits because they weren't earning anymore because the extra money weren't there. But instead what I see is people with record credit card debt getting approved to buy new cars still, mind you at really high rates, they are now paying on their cars and their credit cards, like half of their income and they're not getting cut off. So the, like, I think, I think now people are maxing out credit for the most part, a new card will come step in or they will increase the credit people have. And that's not how it was done in the eighties and nineties with credit. And well, so, yeah, I wanted, so it's, it, I wanted, it's mostly a theory, but I think it's interesting. Well, no, I think, I don't think you're wrong. I think we go back to some of the demographical changes we're talking about right now. Maddie, you finished off the last week's episode in such a beautiful Maddie way about good times create strong men, strong men create bad times or whatever it was, your circle. But this, you know, and, and I got to give some shout out to Tim here in the chat. He's talking about how Gen Z hasn't been taught how credit cards work unless their parents taught them. And I think if we talk about trends, you have a generation of people that never touched money touched physical currency. And so money is just this number that their screen tells them exists or doesn't. And if you don't really understand, like you're, you know, it kind of goes back to the fundamental of, of like your relationship with money, money dysphoria or just dysphoria comes from a distorted relationship with money. Or for, for example, for body, it's like you're, it's a, it's a poor relationship with your body, but if you don't even understand what money is, you've never seen it. You've never touched it. You've never understood it from that perspective. And it's just this digital experience. Then these things can be exploited. And I think what you're talking about, Aaron is why are the credit card companies allowing this to happen? Why don't they just say, Hey guys, like, sorry, after spending X amount of dollars, your income doesn't justify it. You can no longer increased credit card debt. But from a business model perspective, there's no incentive to do so. Yeah, they're like, we'll keep giving you debt because we're going to own you. You're going to be paying us the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Like a student loan. Wow. Yeah. This is not, this is, this is something. I don't think this is just a hypothesis. I think we're talking about today. We've kind of nailed some really interesting things is what if some of this stuff is sort of demographical changes that are happening based on um, sort of the generations that are moving through our economy and some of the trends that we're seeing, uh, people much smarter than us are having the data to prove these systems out and take advantage of it. Right. Um, so super fascinating, brilliant point, Tim, brilliant point. We're going to shout out Tim here, one of our producers. Um, good conversation today, guys. I'm going to wrap up. Any other final thoughts before we wrap up? 27 episodes. I would love to hear from the people that have been listening to most of them. And I want you guys to know a few people jumped over onto our YouTube page and made some comments and they said, I'm listening to you guys on Spotify, but I came here on YouTube just to support you guys and let you know that I'll still come over here and chat and ask the questions. And so we love you guys for that. Yeah, so thank you. That's the only reason I'm still going to keep coming on here and talking to my boys now that they hijacked <laughs> and, and brought everything on to the podcast. So keep coming over and talking to me on YouTube. Um, the love the love the conversations that we've had. I know there are some of you guys that have listened to all 27 episodes, and the 
man, I cannot wait to meet more of you guys in person. Well, I want to say congratulations to all of us, Maddie, Mooch, Mike. So awesome that we've done this for half a year. Can you believe it? This was a simple idea and turned into a really cool thing. I think we're getting a lot of value from it. Uh, I definitely love how the audience is engaging with us as well. Um, I want to, I actually forgot about doing this in the beginning of the episode, but pushing people back to YouTube, I do want to call out some people that left us some comments. Uh, Michael Cater left us a comment. Yay. The podcast has returned. Thanks so much, Michael, for listening to us. Debbie, who is a really dedicated listener. I think she's probably posted on every single one of our YouTubes. Love um, Debbie. Yeah. Thanks so much, Debbie, for we continuing. We love you, Debbie. Yeah. You guys are awesome. And then who's this guy? Mr. Lee Stinson. You're also listening. Appreciate you guys so much. Um, and remember that you can find us on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Leave us a comment so we can call you out and also we can engage with you. But also find us on Spotify, on Apple, and all the podcast platforms. Make sure you also follow us there. Make sure you leave us a five-star review. Um, love you guys. This is the King's Table. Until next time, peace. Signing off from Cancun. Bye-bye.